So this evening, I would like to start with a story. Um, this is a story written by Gil Fransdale. It's called The Path. When arriving at the monastery, new monks and nuns would commonly ask the abbot for instructions on the path of practice. If they were insistent enough about finding the path, the abbot would take them to a remote corner of the monastery garden where people seldom went. There he pointed them to a narrow, narrow walkway that disappeared into the bushes and trees. He told them, you will find the path at the end of the walkway. Then the old abbot turned away, leaving each novice to walk on alone. Intrigued, the new monastics set off in search of the path. Before long, however, the trail took a sharp turn. When they rounded the corner, they came face to face with a very large mirror. It blocked their way. Seeing their own image reflected in the mirror confused the new monastics. Some wondered, maybe I have taken the wrong path. Still, no matter how many times they tried to retrace their steps or start over, sooner or later they found the mirror blocking their way again. More than a few assumed the mirror was placed on the trail to show them that the real path was in them, not in the external world. This understanding frightened some. They ran away. Others collapsed in hopelessness. Some simmered in anger. Occasionally, someone would become so upset that they would hurl a heavy rock at their reflection. The mirror, however, was impervious. Each time they threw a rock, each time they threw a rock at it, the stone bounced back and struck them instead. There were some monastics among them who lingered in front of the mirror, each gazing at his or her own likeness. It mesmerized and delighted them. They spilled over with the conceit of themselves somehow being the great Buddhist path. And of course, there were those novices who simply tried to walk around the mirror, believing it blocked their way. They plunged headlong into the surrounding thicket of bushes, only to emerge scratched and bloodied by the impenetrable web of thorns thorns and undergrowth. From time to time, one of them would see his or her mother or father standing next to them in their reflection. This was an eerie sight, as there was no doubt in their minds about where their parents were walking, uh, where their parents were walking with them or not. They knew they were alone. At other times, their reflected image was obscured by crowds of people. In due course, some of the monks and nuns finally calmed down enough to stop and look into their reflection. For many, it was the first time they ever really looked deeply into themselves. More than a few concluded that the mirror and the reflection were the end of the path. Those who did ended up stuck for a very long time. The others, however, remembered the abbot's advice about finding the path at the end of this walkway. When these monks and nuns stopped and looked deeply into their likeness in the mirror, and one uh, into the mirror, 
a wonderful realization arose in their minds instead. The reflection is of me, but I am not the reflection. Then, when they reached out and lightly touched the mirror, it gave way. Like a great door silently swinging open, it revealed a bright, expansive, sunlight section of the garden unlike anything they could ever have imagined existed. Just beyond, at the edge of the path, stood the old abbot holding two shovels. And it stops there. So, what does this mean? This, this practice uh, that the Buddha has offered to us and to many, many, many before us uh, is often referred to as a path. There is a way in which we can develop ourselves towards uh, an awakening, an ultimate letting go, um, enlightenment, There's many different ways in which it's referred to. But it's a practice that's leading towards something that's different from how we are understanding our world right now. And the story is so beautiful in the way, the different ways that it shows how we get confused by what this path actually is. And so for some of us, maybe we're in the middle of this, or maybe some of us have the long view and we're able to look back and see how many of these different ways we've interpreted the path have come and gone. And maybe our understanding of it is a little bit more clear. We get confused sometimes that uh, this path is something outside of ourselves. Even the reference of it being a path, as if it's something that... um, is external and is actually somewhere where we're going <laughs> physically is a bit misleading as, a, as if we need to chase it down or uh, actually physically be somewhere other than we are, where we are in order to awaken in this moment. And so I think just naturally we get uh, confused about what this, this practice is. I think it's natural also just in our, our cultural uh, upbringing and um, just the culture that we're in right now gives us very different messages from, from what the path actually is. We're constantly being told to look outside of ourselves, or we're told to uh, evaluate, evaluate who we are and how we are by how other people are seeing us. And so within this practice, the path itself is actually our engagement with the practice. It is, as the the mirror was showing the, the monastics, it is an internal practice. It's something that we are cultivating within ourselves. It's not something we can find outside of ourselves. And everything we need in order to awaken is in here. And this can be really scary and bring in a lot of doubt if we are feeling unequipped or not worthy or confused by what that actually is. 
And so we can get stuck really easily on this path, I think. We get, when we get stuck, I think we often also start looking immediately for reassurance and for pleasantries outside of this practice. Or we associate things that might seem like it's part of the path as part of this uh, practice. For example, um, I remember there was a time when I was uh, first starting out in this practice and I felt like in order to really be uh, a good meditator, I needed the right gear. (laughs) And I remember spending quite a lot of time going into the little Tibetan shops in town and going online to find just the right gear and felt like that was really important uh, and that that was really what was going to help me become a better meditator because I was having a really hard time staying still and my mind was really chaotic. It was all over the place and I was just filled with doubt about everything. Although I knew in some way that this was something that was right. There was something really deep inside me that just kept saying, keep going, this is it, keep going, this is, you know, this is what you've been longing for, is this practice. But I didn't have enough understanding, and so I just remember um, actually getting, standing in in a Tibetan shop and looking at all these really beautiful cushions and having anxiety about the choice of what color and shape I should get which seems really ridiculous now. Um, now I just grab a brown cushion and throw it under my butt and I sit down and it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I'm sitting on. But at the time it just seemed really important. Um, uh, Trumpo Rinpoche talks about it as spiritual materialism. We get stuck in this, don't we? If I, if I look the part, then maybe... <laughs> I'll be that. Um, and so this, this clinging and this wanting and um, uh, this mind that is always looking outside of itself easily to, can turn our spiritual practice into um, shopping, <laughs> into materialism. And of course, that's not the path. But it looks, it seems convincing when we're in it, Right? And then I remember times in this practice where I felt that this internal practice was all that mattered and I was very uninterested and even had attitude with the idea of cultivating uh, relational practice. You know, my, where my practice comes in uh, or, or flows off the cushion into my relationships, into the way that I am interacting with the people in my life in the way that I carry myself in my work. Um, And I felt like that just wasn't as important, that my concentration and my meditation was it. That was what was going to lead to awakening. And when I think of it in that way now, too, it seems really silly, really um, selfish, actually. There's a lot of selfing in that. It was really about me becoming something instead of this being um, a practice that affects all beings. And so as we go through the practice and we go through these stages of practice, I think we actually go through stages 
uh, in this way, where we start to shed these ideas of what the practice is. Uh, Any of you ever been a born-again Buddhist? (laughs) You got to this practice and it was just so amazing that you had to tell everybody that you knew about it and tried to bring everybody to the meditation classes and you tried to push the books onto your family and parents and your friends and it was all you could talk about and people who weren't into it, you weren't so sure you wanted to hang out with them anymore. This is a process that a lot of people go through when they are kind of hot on the path, especially in the beginning. And there's something sincere about it, but also confused about that too, right? This idea that uh, we, we end up having this idea that the practice itself is the awakening and that if you don't fit in the box of practice, then there's kind of this aversion that begins to develop for all things outside of that box. That's not what the Buddha taught. And so when we come to this practice, it may be that um, we come face to face with some of these tendencies of ours, these tendencies to uh, try and Uh, beautify our practice or make it look really good or our tendency to push away and get really aversive to all things that might um, get in the way of our practice. And what's so radical about this path is that we begin to learn and begin to soften uh, in these areas in these areas where there's actually quite a lot of friction. I talk about this, uh, I've talked about this before here. The word dukkha, which is uh, the first noble truth in, in a very uh, important part of this practice, of this path, is understanding the truth that when we want things other than they are, we want them to be other than they are, we are actually creating our own suffering. And we're doing this all the time. It's a habit that's so deeply ingrained in us. And when we don't see it, we just continue to repeat over and over again this habit. Even when we do see it, right, we continue to repeat it because it's so strong in us. And I like to think dukkha or this, this suffering that the Buddha talks about is, is really friction against how things are. We're coming up against the way things are. And what's so radical about this practice is we are asked to do it in a different way. We're asked to uh, start to relate to the world in a different way where we stop all that. We stop producing this friction we are actually opening up towards whatever is here. And this is radical. I'll read you a poem. This is uh, one that you all know, I think, quite well. Well, maybe not. You know the last lines of this poem, though, for sure. This is Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, 
And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for, but as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trotted back. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted, I, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And so there's a point in this practice in which we come to that fork in the road. Actually, we come to it over and over and over again, in which we can see, perhaps quite clearly at times, the habitual way that perhaps we've been doing things for a long time, creating this, this friction. And the way that leads to the end of that friction. And this way might be a lot more comfortable. It's a lot more known. It's more traveled by from the people around us, most likely. It's what we've been taught all our lives, most likely. And yet this path is saying, go in the other direction. That's not easy. And so sometimes we pick this one. Maybe we pick it most of the time. And then every once in a while, we don't. And we feel what this feels like, this letting go, this release, this non-friction. Maybe you can feel, I'm, just as I'm talking about it, I get a visceral sense of what that means in my own body. It's a relief. But if you can imagine, in taking this poem a little further, standing in front of two roads that you feel so uncertain which one to go down, what's the right path? We do that a lot, don't we? What's the right answer? And it can be confusing. It can bring in so much doubt. And so there'll be times where you pick the wrong one and there'll be times where you pick the right one. And the more we pick the right road, whether it's with right wisdom and understanding, whether it's with uh, our, our wise action and speech, whether it's with our practice, all of these being factors of the Eightfold Path, We can feel it. We know it when we're there. It just feels right on a different level. Last week I talked about wisdom and how wisdom is not this intellectual exercise, that it's something much more cellularly known by us. In fact, often people come to this practice, and I know this was my own experience, and have described coming to the practice as a coming home, a coming back into ourselves. It's that mirror. We're actually finally getting the chance to look into the mirror and see something different. 
and not only see something different, but realize that, oh, what I thought I was, this is all just perception. It's all smoke and mirrors. The Buddha himself went through quite a journey to uh, his awakening. And even after his awakening, the stories in the suttas are uh, really quite amazing what he went through. It wasn't all bliss as far as what he encountered, and yet he was able to do it from a place where he had fully let go. He was no longer creating this friction in his life. The Buddha actually, for those of you who don't know, came from a lot of privilege. He was a very privileged person. He was a prince, actually. Um, Very wealthy, had many palaces, different palaces for different seasons, um, tons of food and material items and uh, um, women and... um, people serving him, and it just went on and on, just as, as, as extravagant as you can imagine. He had what in our culture you would say he had everything, right? He had it all. And yet at some point in his uh, young adult life, he realized that it was unsatisfactory. And I think those, the people that we think of sometimes as having it all probably now and then come to that place as we all do. This too is unsatisfactory. Have you ever longed for something and then got it and it was really great for a while until it, it wasn't, it got old and then we're on to the next thing. So the Buddha saw this pretty clearly um, at some point. And he saw that in the end, it all leads to the same thing. Old age, sickness, and death. That's where we're all headed, right? We talked about that last week. And so with that clarity of mind, he left this life of privilege and renounced and went into the other direction. So he went from having it all and that kind of glorified lifestyle to renouncing in a very aesthetic way, um, uh, eating barely anything at all, um, wandering uh, and not having a place, uh, a home necessarily, um, and encountered a lot of different teachers who taught him to concentrate in, in ways that were beyond just about anybody else, uh, anyone else's concentration. And, and this was quite satisfying at first, but even then the Buddha realized that, oh, that's actually not it. That's, it's, there's still something there that's, that's holding on. And so then he did other practices where he was fully renouncing to the point where you could see his his bones sticking out from his skin and he became very weak. Um, But this was what he felt would bring uh, awakening. But then realized at some point that this too, this renunciation of the body was not it either. And that there must be some middle way and that's where this path was uh, sprang from. 
In fact, there's the story of him sitting under the um, rose apple tree, which is um, uh, a time where he was emaciated and struggling with this idea of, wait, is this renunciation of the body actually what's necessary for awakening? Is this the true path? And he had this memory of sitting under a rose apple tree when he was about six, I believe. And he was sitting under this tree doing nothing. And this is something that sometimes you'll see kids do. They have this incredible ability to just leave themselves alone, to just be. And there doesn't have to be anything going on. I think it's harder nowadays for our kids to do that. They're pretty stimulated. But when they uh, are able to just be left alone and they can leave themselves alone, there's this quiet that comes. And he was remembering this in his own childhood, this feeling of quiet. And as he was sitting there, uh, this great delight and joy and energy came into his body and a stillness of the mind. And what he was actually experiencing was a level of concentration. And so he remembered this and realized that that um, moment of concentration and of practice and sincerity and a moment really of letting go. He was going from this to this. That there was a peace there that was not, where there was no clinging. There was nothing that was um, tainting that experience. And that gave him faith. He had faith that there was something, another way to do this that there was some middle way of doing this. And so time passed, and then we have the story of him sitting under the Bodhi tree uh, and with um, I imagine his whole being dedicated to this final release and letting go, sitting under this tree. And even then, and this is, you know, the story of the Buddha is that he's been reincarnated over and over and over again. And that in his past lives, he was a bodhisattva, being this magnanimous um, creature or a person that was um, uh, uh, dedicated to the well-being of all beings everywhere. And uh, lots of selfless action and all this merit that had been built up. And so here he is in the time of uh, his lifetime where he would actually awaken. And still he's sitting under this tree and he's bombarded by his mind. He's attacked. He has what's called a hindrance attack. We call them hindrance attacks now. But uh, at the time it was called Mara. And Mara is this character that pops up in the suttas all over the place and has different roles Um, but mostly is this sneaky, cunning um, archetype that often represents our, our mind that is still in the grips of dukkha or confusion or delusion of ignorance. And so at the time when the Buddha was sitting under this tree and he was um, determined to fully let go and awaken, here comes Mara. And Mara is so sweet in the way that Mara can be. And we know this in our own minds. Oh, you've been here long enough. 
just get up. <laughs> you deserve it. Right? Or coming at us maybe not so sweet. And he experienced this with the wars of Mara where he attacks the Buddha with these gruesome images and war images and scary images and imagine what kind of fear can arise from those types of thoughts. And we have those too, don't we? The types of thoughts that really throw us uh, when we, especially when we're in the silence. And then there came the thoughts of desire. And so the thoughts of desire came into the Buddha to try and move him from his quest to awaken. And even through all of this, the Buddha knew what was happening. He was not moved by it. And we too can do this as we are sitting here in our practice and walking this path. And we see the mind being tricky and being uh, disgusting and, and mean sometimes and lustful at times. And it's just an untrained mind. We can see it for that. In fact, in the suttas, often the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. That's the famous line, the interaction with Mara is, I see you. And the minute we see it for what it is, it no longer has power over us to throw us off our practice and our path. But even right up to the end, the, uh, Mara was attacking the Buddha. And his final attack was doubt by saying, who are you? Who do you think you are to be sitting here in this way to claim free freedom and liberation? Who are who do you think you are? We experience this from times sometimes too, don't we? Or maybe it comes in the form of I can't do this. <laughs> this is not for me. You know, maybe I'll get more peaceful, but awakening not in this lifetime. You know, this is Mara. This is Mara. And so one of the versions of the story, there's several different versions of the awakening story, but one that, I, I, uh, that speaks to me is the Buddha being filled with this doubt reaches down and touches the earth. And you'll see this mudra actually, you'll see this in s- different statues, which I, I don't think we have any in here right now, but he reaches down and touches the earth as, and calls the earth as a witness to all of his past lives and merit and his um, right to be there in that space, in that uh, seat of determination and the right to his own awakening. He calls on something larger than himself. What a beautiful teaching for us. That yes, this practice is something that we have to walk alone in many respects, and then there are times when we are just so full of doubt and confusion that we need something larger than ourself because the self is um, overrun with, with doubt and with Mara. And so even after his enlightenment, Mara continues to come to throw him off the path which is something that I find really interesting. The fact that here he is awakened and yet Mara continues to show up. But his relationship with Mara is very clear. He's not bothered by Mara anymore. So this awakened being even then is still having these types of thoughts. 
And yet, it doesn't matter. They're just thoughts. They're so empty at that point. They're empty for us, too. We just don't know it. We give it a lot, them a lot of credit. And we believe them, right? That's the difference, isn't it? They seem really real. They seem justified. There's a point here where... Uh, see if I have the page where Mara comes to the Buddha to trick the Buddha again and this is long after his enlightenment and he says the Buddha is sitting there resolute in exertion near the river of Naranjara making a great effort doing jhana meaning he's deep in deep concentration to attain rest from the yoke the yoke, if you've seen a yoke around uh, a bull or um, a horse, the thing that uh, keeps us restrained and tied to uh, our ignorance. And then Mara comes, speaking words of compassion. So tricky, these sweet words of compassion. You are ashen, thin, death is in your presence. Death has a thousand parts of you. Only one part is your life. Live, good sir. Life is better. Alive, you can do acts of merit. Your living the holy life will heap up much merit. What, what use is exertion to you? Hard to follow the path of exertion. Hard to do. Hard to sustain. And so we have these thoughts too, just maybe even in a 40-minute meditation. You know, we have these Mara thoughts that come through and try to pull us off our path. Or maybe it's just in our daily life. Perhaps we start to give uh, more value to the things that are in fact creating more of this. But it's just so much more comfortable those sweet words of Mara come in and say, you know, oh, you don't need to practice. Or, you know, it's okay if you behave in this way, you know, just this one time. No one will notice. Or if they do, who cares? Who really cares? And we're just creating more of this uh, disruption in our mind and in our hearts. So I want to end with uh, a poem and then we'll do a little bit of um, reflection together. Here it is. This is a famous Mary Oliver poem called The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble as you felt the old tug at your ankles, Mend my life, each voice cried, but you don't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in the wild night in the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the streets, through the sheets of clouds, 
And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So the Buddha, he taught this path because he knew that there were those who could fully awaken or there were those who could at least obtain a level of peace that was virtuous and true and uh, unfaulting. And he actually at some point said, if it was not possible, I would not teach you. I think a lot of us come to this practice because we want to feel better. And maybe in the beginning that's enough. Maybe that's enough to begin. But there's something more to this practice. There's something much more. There's something that allows for a release that nothing else outside of ourselves can, can offer. There are many ways to to this release and this awakening. It's not just Buddha Dharma. There are many dharmas. This is just one of them. And so what I'd like us to do uh, is a little bit of um, uh, discussion in some smaller groups. So what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to one or two people next to you and go ahead and do that and then I'll, I'll tell you what, what you're going to do with each other. Okay. And if you're feeling quiet and you don't want to do this, that's okay too. You're welcome to simply sit and and think about uh these questions as as they as I give them to you. So, what I'd like you to do first is uh introduce yourselves. <laughs> Go ahead and if you don't know each other, just take a moment to introduce yourselves. And this first question, I'm going to have you go either back and forth if you're a group of two or just go around in a circle if you're a larger group. Each of you answering with a phrase, one word or just a couple of words, uh, what gets in the way of your awakening? And awakening can mean many different things. So it might be interpreted in different ways per person. So allow it to just mean whatever resonates with you as uh, awakening to your fuller self, awakening uh, and a release of this suffering of friction, uh, the big enlightenment, or maybe it's just these momentary uh, experiences of freedom. So whatever it means to you, what gets in the way of your awakening? So you'll have a couple of minutes. I'll ring the bell to end uh, that, that round and you can, you can begin.
Okay. So then we're going to do another round of this, uh, but this time I'd like you in using just phrases again. <laughs> I know that was hard for some of you. I, I, I didn't set it up very well in, in that you don't have to explain yourself. This is really more of an exploration uh, for yourself. You know what you mean. <laughs> That's what's important. And then you're being witnessed, which is also um, a, a really wonderful thing to be able to do within Sangha. So um, you can just say a phrase that, that makes sense to you. It doesn't have to make sense to everybody else. So this, this last round we'll do, um, I'd like you to go around in the same way. Uh, and this time I'd like you to explore, I'm going to give you a more specific uh, question, but to set it up, I want you to explore what your awakening feels like, looks like, what does it contain, what doesn't it contain? What is your awakening? Not necessarily how are you getting there, but what is it? What is that for you? So take a moment to think about it. Okay, and then you can begin. I'd love to hear what came from that. Um, also, if there's any questions. The, the words were spaciousness and calm and not feeling pushed to do things. There's just enough time for everything. <clears throat> and the connectedness to all beings, really, and to the world and mm -hmm. not feeling hurried. Mm -hmm. Is there anything more? Yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah? Great. Yeah, thank you. in the back, way in the back. I found it uh, just very joyful, energizing, and um, I just, it was just really wonderful to, to think about my own sense of awakening, but also to hear about someone else's. Mm -hmm. It was just uh, really delightful. Um, I guess for me, unknowable and almost unfathomable until uh, I've had that experience. Yeah. Um, kind of just submitting to the fact that, you know, I don't know what that's going to be like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like we, um, and perhaps this is more so in this 
lineage of, of uh, Theravadan Buddhism. I'm not sure, but it seems like we talk a lot about what the path is and um, not as much about where the end of the path and what is that actually, what is that exactly? What does that feel like? What do, what do we imagine it to be? Almost as if it was uh, taboo <laughs> to talk about or as if it made us prideful to think that we could perhaps experience that someday. And I can't help but think that that's just wrong view. <laughs> that, you know, that that's what this path is built for, isn't it? It's what the Buddha, why he taught, was he that he felt there were those that could, in fact, experience that. And then there were others that could experience a certain level of that. But we don't talk about it very much, about what that could be. And I think it denies us something. It denies uh, perhaps the chance to um, practice for that, for awakening. Especially nowadays, there's there's a lot of secular mindfulness and Mindfulness being taught in a way to feel better, which is beautiful. I, have, I teach that. I, I have nothing against it. I think it's a wonderful thing. And at the same time, there's this path for those who are ready for it and who find it, which is an extraordinary thing. And so thinking about this this awakening, this letting go completely, what would that be like? I think is a wonderful exploration for, for our contemplative mind. Not that we have to figure it out. We'll never figure our way into it. <laughs> but just to begin to recognize that all those things that have been mentioned so far are experiences that we have experienced in their own right. A peacefulness, unknown territory, a joyfulness. I mean, these are, these are human experiences that we've all experienced. And so not making it some mysterious thing that is behind closed doors, but actually uh, something worth talking about, something worth thinking about. What, what could that actually be for me? Or what is it for others? My understanding of, of the end of the path is that it's not an individual experience. Uh, so when I say, what is it for me? It's not like yours will be perhaps one thing and someone else will be another. It seems that even people who are on different paths who come to this end of suffering have a very core understanding, a universal understanding and experience. So when I say your experience of enlightenment, I mean perhaps our experience of enlightenment. Yeah. 
And then what gets in the way of thinking or of, in the way of your path, in the way of practicing towards I think what's missing for me in what's being shared, I, I love the uh, uh, the joy and the spaciousness and uh, peacefulness, but there's something that I guess what I'm experiencing that I'm I'm really loving uh, when I feel awake is that I'm just awake to whatever is happening. So I feel crappy right now, but I have some distance from it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm not underwater. Mm. So it seems to me that the, uh, the end of the path is being awake to the rest of the path mm-hmm. until we die. You know, there's, it's, you know, chop water and chop water. Yeah, chop <laughs> wood, carry water, <laughs> make mistakes. Little distance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be. They actually, uh, in the suttas, there's a lot of references to the fact that at the end of the path, we have to let the path go. And actually, we don't carry it with us. You, know, you cross the river, you, you cross the, a body of water in a canoe, you don't then get on land on the other side and then put the canoe on your back and carry it as you walk through the woods. <laughs> and so even this path is something that uh, we have to let go of. last one so I guess you're talking about hindrances is that another word for what you're talking about what gets in the way hindrances Hindrances certainly are are part of what Um, gets in the way and I think for me um, anxiety and I'm realizing it's probably not just my own anxiety that it's a cultural anxiety Mm -hmm. like somehow I'm not enough Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really rampant in our culture like I'm not enough because I need a car. I'm not enough because I need a diamond. I'm not enough because I need a job. <laughs> Whatever right. that not enough is. Yeah. We have our cultural collective dukkha. Yeah. And which makes it so much harder to choose a path of, of practice. Because, yeah, that those are the messages that we're constantly getting and we've been getting for a long time. And it's this, you know, the, the Dharma punks groups, the against the stream. There's, this is against the stream, you know. There's actually, I believe that reference comes from a part, a sutta that um, the Buddha was looking for inspiration to continue on uh, to before his before he was the Buddha, um, and uh, he, in a way, I think, was looking for a sign and put his his um, uh, his food bowl, his alms bowl in a river. 
And instead of flowing downstream, it started to move against the current. And so he saw that as a good omen to continue on. <laughs> and it's, but it's very symbolic um, that this path, it goes against what seems the norm. Not that we have to exclude ourselves from the world necessarily. I mean, here we are, we're all lay people doing this practice in the world. But um, understanding perhaps that what this world is consisting of is so hollow and uh, there's just not um, the gravity and, and the, the mass that we give it the importance that we we tend to give it. Once we stop believing in all of that, it's just stuff. It just doesn't have the same meaning with it anymore. But until then, it is. It's really difficult. It is going against the stream. Yeah. So one of the important things about sangha and community in this practice is that we can support each other you know, when we come and we practice here, even if you don't know other people here, you can feel that there's a collective intention and energy here. There's um, something very uh, virtuous about us all being here and spending time in this way. And uh, that's really important. It's so important uh, to be able to walk this, this path. We are doing it on our on our own and that's in a sense that only our awakening can come from from here but at the same time um, that that support like the Buddha touching the earth in a sense we can touch down into our Sangha and and feel that place of refuge and support from from each other even just being here. When you come here, you're not coming here just for yourself. You come here for the support of everybody here, for everybody's unfolding in this practice. It's essential for all of us to, to, um, for, to, to deepen this practice and to be against the stream in that sense, to have this kind of support. It's a rare few who don't need it. There are those who don't, but it's a rare few so with that, we'll dedicate the merit to, um, to our community here, our community at large, the community of beings that we are a part of. May our practice and our deepening of understanding be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and content in their life. May all beings feel uh, a safety from inner and outer harm. May all beings be healthy in their minds as well as in their body. May all beings be able to let go. Let go into the peace that this practice reveals. May the practice be for the benefit of all beings.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.